the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey everyone, welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with your friend and mine, the right Reverend Brian Fromm. Coming to you from Elk Grove Village in beautiful Illinois. Beautiful. Think of monsoon out there Why today. Why do we live here? <laughs> at least the taxes are low. Anywho, <laughs> anywho, you can find us a couple places. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com. Wherever it is that you find podcasts, we are there. We're even on the dark web, we discovered. That's, that's, that's not, not true. true. <laughs> it's not true. It might be true. I would love for someone to out themselves dark. as like a dark web expert. Like, oh, no, yeah, you guys are there, too. <laughs> you guys you guys are everywhere. Uh, if you like, subscribe, review. That does somehow actually help us out. If you already have, an honest thank you, because that means a lot to us. Plus, for us, the goal is always not for this just to be a show, but to be a community. So we'd love for you to engage with us, to, uh, to comment, to make suggestions, give feedback. All of that really, really does help a great deal. And uh, if you've been on Facebook at all in the last 24 hours, you probably were wondering why everyone on your Facebook feed got so much older in the last yes. day. And there's a reason for that, Brian. A little annoying, us? right? A little annoying. I was I like, I might it. get off here for a while. <laughs> I saw somebody said, this reminds me of the Ice Bucket Challenge. I'm out for a week. <laughs> yeah, but at least the Ice Bucket Challenge was like benefiting people. It was. So you've probably noticed there's this face app. Uh, it's a photo filter in which uh, it, it makes it makes a person kind of shows what they'll look like or uh, makes a guess of what they'll look like when they're old and when they're going. So some really funny ones I saw people like, you know, picking celebrities who are old, like, oh, look, I look like George Clooney or whatever else. Ha, 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 ha. And, uh, but I got to be honest, it, it has kept me off of social media much of today. Oh, like it, it has? Was, yeah, it's kind of aggravating. Did you do it? Did you see mine? No, did this, you do it? This would have gotten you off of Facebook so much faster. <laughs> I did a collection of my two sons. <laughs> did you really? <laughs> How, I don't know. It, I missed this. It came out so terrifying. <laughs> I had a picture too, particularly of my eldest, who's you know not even two yet, with a little fedora and a little vest. And that so when it made is... him old, he looked like Benjamin Button. He looked like a little mini, little mini old man. It was uh, it was pretty amazing. But yeah, but it, like it comes at a cost, though. There's a whole lot of other say, things going on. There can never be it can never be really innocent, right? When it comes to social media. So what do you uh, mean by that? This Brian? article that I read, uh, it was out of the New York Post. It says face app security concerns. Russians now own all your old photos. <laughs> is it bad that I? I already assume they did. Uh, it <laughs> says experts warn that the free old age filter created in 2017 by developers. Uh, these developers are in St. Petersburg, Russia, poses security concerns that may give them access to your personal information and identity. And I read this. I was like, man, we can't have any fun around here anymore. Like we can't I think the Russians are all over our social media, but I don't know what you thought about it, if that caused gave you pause or if you're like, well, I don't know, whatever. Not uh, OK. Not to be dystopian. Yes. I assume they have all that anyway. 
Like people are like, oh my gosh, they have access to your photos. I'm like, let them have them. I don't. I don't. <laughs> what are they do with I'm my at photos? that point in my life. I hold they have access to your bank account. Like, there's no money in there anyway. Pay like, the what bills am I? For yeah, me. <laughs> right. Thanks for covering everything. That's again. I realize that's not a good posture. There's a, a, another article that uh, I read on Relevant magazine, and uh, they took an excerpt from the actual terms and licensing agreement, and then it says uh, that's basically a lot of words to say your photo forever belongs to Wireless Lab, and anyone they want to give it to to do whatever they want with forever. It is impossible to tell from this what happened. Happens when you upload, uh, which is the problem. Privacy expert David Vale told Australian Broadcast Corporation: the license is so lax, they can claim you agree, they can send to what, uh, wherever they like, to whoever they like, and uh, and so long as there is some connection, they can do a lot of things with it. Well, what kind of things? That's the million dollar question. Literally, as unfettered access is the is the name of the game in data mining. Sure, this could mean that your photo ends up on a billboard in Berlin, but far more likely, it means your photo is being used for digital experiments. Earlier this year, popular photo storage app Ever was caught using photos to help train software sold to law enforcement agencies. IBM was caught in a similar scandal using Flickr photos to train digital facial recognition software without users' knowledge. So it's not just about no. oh, now they have access. Access to it, and it might end up on a greeting card. It's actually way more nefarious. It than is. That. Although I did get a picture of like you're in Germany driving down the street, and all of a sudden you're like, "Is that me? Me on that German billboard <laughs> right that's now?" An eighty year old man. <laughs> Everyone's old. Yeah. People in Germany are like, "Why are all these Americans old?" I would love to find out. This is all like a like a massive ploy by like Depends or something like that's this. Really, is just funny. a marketing ploy. I just, I guess for me, it is the cynical side of things. Like I don't. I just, when I read these stories, I'm like, like you, like, yeah, okay. I don't know. I don't know. Should these things cause us fear? Because they probably don't cause in me enough fear. Because I'm the same way when they're like, somebody can hack you. I'm like, okay. Like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do about it? So uh, I don't know if these things bother you. Uh, they probably don't bother me enough. Is Do I strike you problem. as someone that's bothered by things like this, Brian? Uh, considering you just said that you did it, you did both your kids <laughs> I on this. I uploaded so. a collage of my children. I don't. This, okay, here's how the relevant thing ends, though. Yep. It says FaceApp isn't exactly unique in this kind of vague data scoping, uh, but the app's virility makes it convenient a convenient case study for the ways tech companies can sneak into your personal information for reasons that may not be clear even to them. The important thing is to get access now and see what opportunities pop up later. That's as good a reason as any to think twice before giving them your information. So mm. that, to me, at least gave uh, some broadened handles on what it could possibly mean, because the jokes, like you're saying, are, ah, if it ends up on a billboard, so what? Yep, it's yep, not like, yep. oh, I didn't get royalties. It's actually a whole lot more about access and things they could do with that access years down the road without even knowing necessarily what those things are now. Yeah. That honestly is That's probably a worth a little bit of concern, but I, I don't know. What it always reminds me is how naive I am to things like this is really what it comes down to. Like, it's not like, oh, I know exactly what's going on, but I'm not going to be worried about it. I tend to just be really naive about these things. Like, I don't know. Can they really do this? And and then, you know, you, you, you watch some movie or listen to some podcast like, wow, they can really do crazy stuff. But <laughs> I think it's a little bit of a mixture of naivety by me and just like, just like, I don't know. I, I have enough things to care about in my life that, that this is not one of them. Now I haven't downloaded the app or done it. So uh, maybe now I won't. Um, but yeah, I, I sometimes when I read this article, I said, I could probably use a better dose of fear with these things that I don't understand. Is fear the right word though? Or is it just cautiousness? Maybe. Yeah. Wisdom. We have talked on other segments though. Sometimes, um, cowardice masquerades as wisdom yeah that we don't do anything ever because oh we say that we're being discerning like yeah maybe you're just being a scaredy cat but like you remember the movie enemy of the state yes so i remember watching this was 20 years ago right i remember thinking 
Okay, if they're making a movie about this kind of technology, they probably already have this kind yep. of technology. And I read a whole other article about like Alexas and Echoes going crazy yes. and giving like really creepy responses to very weird questions. Again, I'm not one of those guys, but maybe I'm one of those guys. Like yeah. it's a little, some of that stuff is a teensy bit spooky. Yeah. So it is, uh, he, the, this article in New York Post uh, ends, eventually this technology expert believes your face will also be used to access even more critical private information, such as banking credentials. So I think, I think the takeaway is uh, this could be a big deal, and it's worth looking into. We should all probably, a little bit of cautiousness would go a long way for us. And uh, yeah, probably taking the same attitude that I do, like, well, whatever, is probably... <laughs> Uh, not helpful in this. I'll be really honest, and this is going to make extra sense because we're on the radio. I just feel bad that anybody else would have to look at my face that doesn't need to. <laughs> like that this right here, this mug would be forced than anyone, particularly overseas. But that just makes my heart sad that anyone would have to look at this face more than they but would ironically, need to. Ironically, ironically, uh, uh, old Ian is, is kind of more comforting and probably a little okay, better looking. Okay, but this is the whole other thing. We don't have time to get into it now, but I've heard a couple people make really strong cases for the men that do it actually come out looking quite attractive, much more attractive than the women who do it. And I think... Gosh, I wish I had more time to rant about this because that, I think, is a whole other sort of subtle thing that our culture often says kind of with a nod and a wink without really overtly saying it. And uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe this conversation will come up later again. I plan on being we... better looking in my 60s and 70s we than now. plan on that, Brian. I do, I do. None of us are actually going to do it. <laughs> All right. Well, coming up next, more than half of you apparently uh, put headphones into your ears for the sole purpose of not talking to people. What does that mean for us as a culture and a society and how can we engage that? That's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. That song always makes me think we're at like the final scene of a rom-com from the 90s. Like this is the victory scene. This is the final game of the season. This is, I don't know what imagery it brings. Am I off base on that one? No, that works. I wouldn't have thought of that. But <laughs> What do you think of? Oh, I, I don't. But now that you've got me thinking of the end of a rom-com, I do. I love rom-coms. Can I just throw that out there? I for think people? you've thrown that out multiple times. Have I really? I think you have. I like a good rom-com. Best rom-com of all time. Oh, that's going to be really hard right there. I'm going to need time to think about that. Give me to the what? end of this segment. Okay, just top five. I won't hold you to this. Just pick one of your top five rom-coms of all time. I, I, do you remember? This is going to sound really old school. Do you remember the... Uh, Sleepless in Seattle. I did love that, but along oh. the same line, remember when uh, You've Got Mail came out? Oh, yeah. I love that one. That was Meg Ryan at her most Meg ryan It was. Right? What about Jerry Maguire? Is that considered a rom-com? Because mm. I love Jerry Maguire. I think any movie that has the line with the, with the tight zoom, You Complete Me, yes. is by definition a rom-com. Thank you. Thank you. But was there a calm? It was. It was there fun. was Rom for sure. It was uh, Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character. I think was there. He was the uh, he was the okay. humor in that one. I would say it's Rom light on the calm. That's <laughs> High Rom, low calm. <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes. Have you seen About Time? By the way, I have not. You haven't? No. Okay. So John's point. I mean, he's seen it. I actually just rewatched it. Is this the movie we were talking about the other day? The time traveling. Yeah, one. yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. The one that makes me cry. Yes, 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 yes. yes, yes. Um. I don't know that I can formally recommend it on a Christian station. You can. Can I? Yes. I think you're just trying to get me in trouble. That's what you're trying to do. No, it, I, it's a it's a really interesting premise. The trailer looks way cheesier than the actual movie is. And it's, yeah, I don't like rom-coms as much as you do, but I did, I did like that one. I do. So how about a story that has nothing to do with anything we've been talking about for the last two minutes? How do you feel about that? I feel like that's pretty par for the course. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. All right. So a couple of days ago, saw this on... Ken, Ken's5.com. 
I think that's an acronym. It says, more than half of people wear headphones just to avoid talking to other people, researchers say. Other reasons people said they wear headphones are to avoid being distracted at work, while 23% of those polled said they believe headphones are a fashion accessory. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. Charlotte, North Carolina, we've all been there. Whether you're trying to get in that much need a workout or simply want to finish a task at work, you decide to pop in your earbuds. It's the universal sign for do not disturb, right? Apparently... We're not really as busy as we pretend to be, according to German researchers. Half of people who regularly wear headphones do so just to avoid talking to other people. Other reasons people said they wear headphones are to avoid being distracted at work and the 23% blah, 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 blah. Exactly what I read. So uh, I'm curious, one, do you do this? Two, why do you think so many people do? Uh, I do wear my headphones often, but usually... You do? Only when I'm at like a Panera or a Starbucks trying to get work done. Got it. So I'm never wearing headphones like, uh, hey, yeah, I'm just kind of don't want people to talk to me. But now (laughs) the other day, the funny you bring this up the other day, I was at Panera. Yeah. And I didn't know anybody there. So it's not like I was trying to avoid anybody in particular, in particular. Uh, But the, the podcast I was listening to ended. Uh, and was I was the take, common good podcast. It was not. Okay. And I did not take my headphones out. I just left them in going, yeah, this will just, this will help people understand. Like I'm working right now, but generally I'm not, you know, where it really strikes me is, um, kind of the, the kind of high school, junior high generation now, hmm. or maybe even a little that have headphones in all the time. Yeah. There's literally like clothing and apparel that makes yes. it more easy for you to like, install your headphones into the hoodie and i'm always like what are you like my daughter will we will be uh she'll be watching something on her phone like let's say we're all sitting in the living room and you know just kind of vegging and uh and you know we're all watching tv but she's watching something on her phone and i won't realize she has her headphones on and i'll start talking to her and she'll look at me and then just pull it out be like what were you talking to me i'm like oh my gosh we're in the living room and you have your (laughs) headphones on right now uh and like you go to yeah the I remember walking into our high school class at our at our church. This was two or three years ago. And like they hadn't started yet. And the kids were not like sitting around talking to each other. Right. They all were like slumped in their chairs with headphones. And I remember having the thought, I think they're trying to avoid the awkwardness of not really knowing each other. Right. Because right. we just started the class. It was like a kind of a new deal. I said, I think there's something. I wonder if when you walk through the schools, if there's just lots of kids on headphones all the time. Yeah. When it's weird because. You know, we're we're reading more and more that we're the most connected generation of all time, right? In terms of how social media and technology has uh, informed and cultivated that. But we're using headphones now, apparently, to avoid any like yeah. physical face to face interaction. And I, you know, I really only wear them if I'm at a coffee shop. Yep, me too. I don't really, or I guess mowing the lawn. That's pretty. You I and I wear them at podcast. the same time. Oh, look at us when weeding or mowing the lawn, Twinsies. and when at a coffee shop or Panera or something. Which is, I think, fine. Um, but it is interesting to me that we do these things like, okay, so the thing that I would do, uh, 15 years ago when I wanted to not be talked to is I would pretend to be on a phone call. <laughs> no, you did yeah, that. I told her, Oh yeah. And I'd make up a whole other, other side of the conversation, which, you know, if I, usually it was because I was uncomfortable or I didn't know where to go or whatever. So you, you know, you have to do something. So I, I do actually get the sentiment, but it's interesting to me though, that this has become so normative that, well, yeah, we don't want to. I don't want to interact with people. Like even think about when was the last time someone asked you what the time was? That used to be a really normal Uh, thing, right? We don't have to because we all have our phones with us. So there's less and less reason for us to interact interpersonally because the same thing, like we used to ask for directions. You don't do that now. Everyone's got a 
a Maps app. So we have less and less reasons, and we're still overcorrecting to make sure people don't disturb us with their headphones in. We should all uh, we should all ask somebody what time it is today. See what the response would be. You are funny though because you and I will do the show, and then we'll uh, our cars are in the parking garage, so we'll leave together and ride the elevator, or whatever. Go on out and hold hands. Yeah. Yes, yesterday, really uh, we've got to tell a story about how yesterday you literally couldn't find your car. I and kept I, hitting I had the beeper. Ch- I had to drive you around the parking. And even garage. you were dumbfounded. You're like, I think that's up. No, that's no, down. No, no, I couldn't remember what floor if it was people, on. If people could watch how long it took us to find your car so driving in my car. That hasn't happened to me in so long. <laughs> that was really funny. I did. Yeah, that made me laugh. Um, I don't remember what I was saying. <laughs> Don't worry, we're not doing a radio show. Or- oh, yeah. Oh, you, though, when we ride an elevator, you always engage the people in the elevator. Yeah. I always wonder, wonder what they're thinking. Like, I don't think we live in a culture in which people engage other people in an elevator. Which is exactly why I do it. I know. It's, it's why I talk totally to our waitress and but the cashier. And- interestingly, oftentimes, in that short little run on the elevator, like, the people, like, laugh and they enjoy it. And they're yeah. like, it's really funny because I don't think it... I don't get on an elevator and be like, I'm going to engage these people. And you always do can do And you kind of do it ironically and funny. Yeah. Uh, but like we said, this culture we live in where it's like, put your headphones on. Don't right. look at anyone. Don't talk to anyone. Usually I'm surprised by how many times after riding down four floors, the people are like, ah, ha, ha, have a great day. Like it's kind of <laughs> like they're not running away from you. Well, like, that's because it's such low hanging fruit, though. Yeah. People are so used to people not interacting that even the slightest kindness because I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that funny. Like they're, la- <laughs> they're laughing way more than they should, but the expectations are so low. It actually makes me think of the story we did a couple of weeks ago about <laughs> how important it is to, to look homeless men and women in the eye. Yeah. And we read this whole article, this whole story about how important it is in that demographic, but we don't do it with each other. Yeah. And if the whole point of the article is how dehumanizing it is to not, to not ever be looked at in the eye, isn't it maybe safe to say that's also applying to us in similar social spaces yeah. that, yeah. You know, and I and I'm not so pie in the sky that I think my one quip in the elevator like changed that person's yeah. day. But they smiled. They they inter- it's very interesting because yeah. they get on that elevator and having no, they're not going to talk to you or me right. or the other person. And right. usually, like I even noticed the other day, there were four of us on the elevator and we were in four different corners of the elevator. Yes, like right. Goes to their corners and looks on their phone, and you like walk in and you're just like, hey, everybody, and you make some joke about the elevator, <laughs> and like I remember like the lady was laughing. I was like. I think she's enjoying this. This is interesting. Yeah, I, but, for I every, thought, but every one person who's enjoying it, five are hating it. Though. There, are so people now, yeah. there are people in the building who look in the elevator for yeah, right. like, <laughs> There are people now that take the stairs every day because of my... But I, honestly, I think I saw my dad do that from as young okay. as I can remember. And the way that he engaged people wasn't... It had depth to it. Like people at restaurants and cashiers and baggers. I remember very early on thinking, oh, people feel... Like known and seen when my dad interacts with them, and I remember always thinking, like, I want to make people feel that way. Yeah, and it seems so silly because you know a lot of these people you'll never see again, and they may they may never inter- you know remember that interaction. But it's like it cost me nothing. Yep, it took fifteen seconds out of my day. Like, what would it look like just to treat people like they matter because they do? And yeah. I think it's easy just to kind of get caught. And I don't. I didn't really plan on like railing against this headphone thing because I've also done it as yep, we yep, both admitted. Yep. But I think it's actually a, I will, uh, an I important thing it. to do. I will probably do it at some point today or tomorrow. <laughs> yes. Same, same here. All right, coming up next. Here's a story after my own heart. Clutter is a trigger of stress and anxiety. Psychologists say we're going to get into that story right here in the Common Good on AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. What does this song make you feel? Hmm. This is an indie film for sure. Okay. I'm thinking Tokyo. 
I can see it. He's a he's an underground karaoke specialist. I'm just going to sit and listen to where you go. With no, this, this yeah. is not safe. Yeah. This is not an good. Underground karaoke my, specialist. Tell me more. My unrestrained brain just making observations into a microphone is not a good idea. So I was looking up during the break. We last segment we were talking about rom coms. Yeah, and. Uh, if this is actually a rom-com, then this would be at the top of my list. But do you consider The Princess Bride a rom-com? Uh, I don't. I don't either. No. But when I, when I Googled rom, best rom-coms, Princess Bride was up there. A lot of people do. I disagree. Let's I think do I a disagree whole segment too. on that sometime. I think I disagree, too. I love The Princess Bride. I do, too. And that's a yes. top, top three movie for my wife. She maybe, loves Maybe Princess that's Bride. why. Because I don't really like rom-coms, and I love that movie. So you won't so, let it be. So I can't reconcile in my head that being a rom-com. That's awesome. All right. By the end of the show, we need to know what's your number one can you commit to that huh right. really by the end of the show you'll sure. give us your number one sure you'll just be googling while i talk i'm, gonna go- I'm not gonna listen to anything <laughs> else we do today perfect this will be a, this will be a fun conversation then all right i teased it up some of you are like all systems go with this headline clutter is a trigger of stress and anxiety psychologists say imagine coming home after a hard day at work opening your front door and the first thing you notice is that the whole place is a total mess the kids have left piles of clothes and toys on the floor. The kitchen sink is chock full of dirty dishes. The table has half-eaten sandwiches, probably coming from a DoorDash driver, and a spilled drink. For most people, they immediately feel stress and anxiety as they know that they will be the ones that have to clean everything up and will be spending their precious few hours of leisure time continuing to work instead of relaxing. Psychologists say that cluttered space is a trigger of stress and anxiety. Rarely is clutter recognized as a significant source of stress in our lives. Psychologist Sherry Berg-Carter explains, though, that clutter can play a significant role in how we feel about our homes, our workplaces, and ourselves. Messy homes and workspaces leave us feeling anxious, helpless, and overwhelmed, yet... Rarely is clutter recognized as a significant source of stress in our lives. So this is kind of a new for us, a first for us, uh, two sets of eight lists in the rest of the segment. The first set of eight will be reasons for this. And then the second set of eight will be uh, some steps forward. Yes. So if you are a note taking type, I would encourage you to like grab a pen, a piece of paper, because I actually think this is really helpful. Why don't you give us the eight specific reasons that clutter leads to so much stress? Yeah, number one, clutter serves as excessive visual, olfactory, and tactile stimuli. Ooh, that was that was impressive. That's a, that a thick sentence. Causing our senses to work overtime by focusing on items that are unimportant in that moment. Uh, number two, clutter can distract our minds away from what we are trying to focus on. That makes sense. Three, messes make it more difficult for us to relax mentally, emotionally, and physically. Sure. Four, clutter signals to our brains that our work is not finished, keeping us from resting. Interesting. Uh, Next, anxiety can set in when viewing clutter as we're not sure how much more effort it will take to eventually get it all cleaned up. That totally makes sense. Uh, The next one, clutter can make us feel guilty for not being more organized and also embarrassed, especially when someone pays us an unexpected visit at our home. I totally feel that one. Seven, clutter inhibits creativity and productivity by draining valuable energy and focus away from our quiet times of reflection and problem solving. And last, clutter can lead to frustration when we are unable to find items that we need quickly due to the mess. These totally make sense, man. Interestingly, before you jump into what the fixes are in my marriage, uh, this is one thing I've had to learn. Messes and clutter bother me. Mm. They are. They drain the life out of my wife. Oh, really? Oh, everything I just read there uh, carries like just uh, 
not demeanor, but her her just uh, satisfaction of being at home. Mm. If our house and we've got three kids and we've got busy lives. And so right. there are times where it looks like a tornado came through our house. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, and in those moments where our house is at the worst, I can see, like it. it I'm get annoyed by it. I'm like, oh, guys, why oh, are right, we? Right. Why is this? And, but for her, it's like powering down. I, <laughs> what they're saying here, clutter is triggering stress and anxiety. Mm. Uh, my this, I'm going to listen to this next part because this is this this is an issue for Carrie. Really? No doubt. Well, no I appreciate doubt. that you recognize that, though. I think that's, I mean, growing in your marriage and recognizing, like, oh, she's not just frustrated. Yeah. And again, like you know, so we have two little ones. So that, yeah, same thing. Our our house oftentimes is at a place where like, oh, this is, and the hypocrisy that I have is that I'm often way more stressed out by someone else's clutter than my oh, own. Oh, interesting. So like, ugh, why is this still out? And I'm like, you left your thing out. I'm like, gosh, you're so right. Like, that's that's what I'm really realizing, that it's uh, it's other people's clutter that tends to weigh more on me than my own, which maybe isn't, um, maybe isn't rare. Okay, so here are eight uh, decluttering steps or methods that hopefully are helpful in some capacity. Number one, get the family to help. Uh, if your house has large amounts of clutter, don't try to fix everything by yourself. Instead, get the whole family involved in making your home a stress-free environment. Start by choosing a room that everyone uses and assign each person a certain area of the room to declutter. Mm. Once the room uh, is tidied up, move to the next room and enjoy a sense of accomplishment after each room becomes organized. You want to take number two? Number two, create places for frequently used items. We can prevent clutter by creating specific areas such as drawer, drawers and cabinets. For the items that are frequently used, this allows you to know where these important daily items are and lets you find them quickly and easily, eliminating the previous stress of searching for them. Okay, easier said than done, obviously. Number three, I am terrible at this one. Get rid of things you don't use. I keep them because I might need them one day, right? That, That big question mark in the sky. If you don't use it, uh, recycle it or give it to charity. Keeping things you don't need uh, or use invisible sight will only add stress levels. If you use if you use it rarely and want to keep it, then consider storing it in a well-labeled box in the garage. This mes- method helps your home to have more open space, which in turn allows your mind to relax more. Uh, number four, put things back after using them. Easier said than done. Yeah, right. An important habit to develop for families is to always put things back into their designated spaces immediately after having finished using them. This may sound simple, but not everyone does it. And it's a very effective method for keeping a home free from stressful clutter. Okay, number five is interesting. Make a pending folder. A pending folder is a place to put all the papers and documents of projects you're working on, allowing you to free up and clear space on your desk, as well as making it easier to find the documents you need. When you're ready to revisit a document, simply open the folder and then put that specific that specific piece of paper on your desk. Number six, don't let papers pile up. Okay. Back to the idea. Again, easier <laughs> look, said than look, done. Look at our desk right now. Back to, <laughs> <laughs> we might need to see what we talked about two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. There it is. Mm-hmm. Don't let the idea... Uh, Oh, yeah. Back to the idea that clutter represents unfinished and stressful work that needs to be done. Make sure to quickly clean up and organize any heaps of papers laying around your house. This includes mail, flyers, homework, newspaper. I did this last night. We had a huge stack of mail, and I said, right now, I'm going to sit, watch TV, and go through that mail. Good for you. You're a good man. Number, Number seven. Number seven of eight. Here we go. Tidy up your workspace before you leave it. After you finish working, make sure to declutter your primary workspace. This habit will leave you feeling accomplished and satisfied after a good day's work. I think you'll agree. It also makes you feel good when you return to a clean workspace the next day. Totally agree. I'm also terrible at this. Number eight uh, way to declutter. Make it fun. 
The key to maintaining a decluttered home or office is in keeping the motivation it requires to follow these methods. Make decluttering fun by listening to your favorite music while getting things in order. Uh, It not only lifts your spirit, but it can also make the time pass faster. And then voila, your home has been decluttered and everyone's stress and anxiety levels are going to decrease. Are you challenged by this? Does this preach or are you kind of like, yeah, that's never going to happen? I've got to I've got to try to convince myself that these are not none of those were like uh, were rocket science there. Right. They're just right. difficult to do in the midst of day to day family life. But I do, especially the first part of that article, the stress and anxiety that come from clutter and mess, I think is a real deal. Well, I also like the challenge to make it fun. Like my mom was so good at this. Like she would assign different points. I think she called them angel points. Huh. So when you accomplish them, you got different points. And then once you got a certain number of points. Uh, it wasn't usually monetary, but you got awarded something and it often revolved around an activity or doing stuff together. And I was always motivated by that. Like I love hanging out with my family and I always really appreciated how good she was at saying it was. I mean, obviously they had to just put down the law sometimes, but it wasn't like, hey, just do this because you do this. It's like, all right, when you accomplish this, we'll all go to the zoo together. And we were all like, we love the zoo. We love like, the zoo. I don't yes. know. I always was really inspired by their willingness to make these things more of a family event to make them more fun. That's good. And, uh, yeah. Have your mom back on. Yes. Yeah, let's yeah, let's bring my mom back. You're not the first person to request that, by the way. Nice. All right, coming up next. Atlanta turns seven acres of vacant land into the largest free food forest in the country. It's a fascinating story. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, the right Reverend Brian Fromm. I don't call you the right Reverend nearly enough. Nobody does. Do <laughs> Nobody does. <laughs> is that something that you'd want me to start doing? Is I that, don't think so. You don't think so? Sounds very formal. Did you ever have anyone like insist on calling you Padre or Father or Pastor or pastor. Reverend? Pastor? Uh, there are people in my church even now. I, I'm more the casual. Like, Just call me Brian. Let's, you know, I'm. I'm probably tend towards too casual at times. Really? And, uh, but there are, I have learned there are some people across all ages, like it's not an older or younger thing. There are people who feel like, I don't know if you have this in yours, they have to call me either Pastor Brian or literally there's some people just, just call me Pastor. Oh, yeah. Never, never Reverend, never, um, like, you know, you jokingly said Padre or whatever else, but, um, Father. Uh, but yeah, there are people who insist on calling me pastor, even though in the beginning I was like, don't worry, you know, just call me Brian. Okay, pastor. Oh, I <laughs> well, see how this is going to go. So. And I used to actually rail against it a whole lot more. Oh, and then you. it was like, ah, it's a sign of respect that I appreciate, even though, you know, at times I don't feel like I've done anything to earn it. But it, do we, people who do that? Oh, for sure. My last church, we actually had this this sweet woman. She used to always insist on calling me Padre and, padre. and then bow. No way. Yeah. So I'd be, so I'd be like, how are you? Oh, I'm good, Padre. Oh, and she would kind of hold her. She was so sweet. She came from a from a pretty uh, a pretty strict Catholic background. And so for her, I even we even had the conversation. Her husband called me, Ian. He'd high-five me. And she's like, oh, Padre. Oh, no way. It was actually really padre. sweet. That's I know. awesome. I, I kind of loved it. All right. So uh, I, think, I think you're going to love this headline. Uh, it says, Atlanta turns seven acres of vacant land into the largest free food forest in the country. What's going on here? Yeah, it says Atlanta has taken a large expanse of land over seven acres, in fact, that wasn't being used. Uh, so, you know, a lot of cities especially uh-huh. have just unused land. Yep. Uh, and it's about to change as Atlanta City Council has just voted in favor of changing all this vacant space into the state of Georgia's first 
food forest. Now, I never even knew this concept of a food forest existed. Listen to this. As stated, this will be a free food forest. The project, which has been dubbed the Urban Food Forest, will be available to everyone completely free of charge. This amazing forest will have lots to offer, including edible trees, Mm -hmm. shrubs, and vines, in addition to more traditional community garden beds. But it's not all about food either. There's walking trails, public gathering spaces. Effectively, it's like going into a park and simply eating food from bushes, except this is much larger than just any old park. Currently being owned by the Environmental Agency, the Conservation Fund, the unused land will be sold on to the city of Atlanta for only $157,000. Wow. Uh, the agency came into the possession of land after it had been abandoned to a failed business venture. Uh, and so it's just amazing to me, man. Like it says, uh, keeping in line with Atlanta's goals to strengthen the local food economy to ensure 85% of the city residents are within one half mile of fresh food access by 2021, the urban food forest will offer plenty of food from trees, bushes, and shrubs, which are completely free to anybody who wants to visit. This is crazy to me. I didn't know that the concept of like, hey, a food forest where you're just eating off the trees and the bushes, like that's that's mine. That, that boom, blowing my mind on that one, man. <laughs> blowing my mind. You heard it here first, folks. Brian Fromm to this story. Boom. Boom. Mind blown. Have you ever been to anything like this before? Never. Never. I just, when I first read this, uh, I was like, okay, cool. They're turning seven acres into a cool park. Like they're going to make a park. What a cool, what what a great thing to do with this excess land that was not being used. Great for the people, walking trails, all this stuff. And then I started reading and it's like, oh wait, no, this is like for food. This is edible trees and bushes and, and also walking trails and stuff. I, uh, it's crazy. I don't know why we don't do more stuff like this. Probably, uh, probably what? I know I, that was a weird way to end a sentence. <laughs> I don't know why we don't do more stuff like this. Period. God. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting too that uh, a lot of city centers, like Detroit, actually has been at the forefront of a lot of this types of uh, right? ur- urban farming and, and agriculture. Really innovative stuff using space. You know, Detroit's a little bit of a unique case because there's like whole city blocks that have been abandoned and overgrown. So a lot of a lot of farmers and artisans are moving in and kind of recultivating this land. But I, you know, even at Poplar Creek where I pastored for seven years in Bartlett, that sat on, on 10 acres of property in the middle of the suburbs. And uh, I remember one year, a couple of kind of green thumbs approached me and said, Hey, can we use some of the land to, to grow some crop, grow some vegetables? I was like, yeah, that would, that would be awesome. And I said, can, can we make that a part of like the children's curriculum? Like I'd love for kids, especially suburban kids to like get, dirt on their nails and learn about like seeds and growth and all like there's so many good metaphors there too and i think our first or second year we grew m- like more than 600 pounds of crop no way no that way. we were able to give away to families that couldn't afford fresh produce we worked with uh, a ministry that was partnering with uh, with refugees in the area and it was like such an it was one of those things that like i wish i had thought of it sooner no you kidding. have 10 acres of property and we mow most of it. There's a parking lot, obviously, and there's a parsonage that I lived in. But a lot of it was just, you know, it's just grass. And I'm not knocking grass, but like the amount of money we spend caring for and cultivating grass in this yep. country, yep. and it does nothing, is is actually pretty insane. And I love, and there's, and I also love that churches seem to be really getting in on the act because we've gone on mission trips where, uh, like, we visited a church in, I think this was the Dominican Republic. They owned a building and they committed the entire roof of it to a garden. And the second floor was a restaurant that the church ran. Really? And they got 85% of their ingredients from the garden that they managed at the top. And so they were able to like provide meals for the people in the community 
by crops that they themselves were growing. It just was really sustainable. It was really thoughtful. Wow. Uh, but it was like boots on the ground. Like this is a need in our community and we're going to go after it. I, I like seeing these stories of particularly like cities doing things to help people who need help. Like this isn't like a handout or whatever. This right. is something good for the city or what city were we talking? You and I did a story about it. I don't have any remember what city it was, but they were taking and making all of those little houses like uh, to, to help homeless people. And you're right. like, well, that makes a ton of sense. And so I, I do get encouraged when I read stories like this every now and then we like to just put out their stories that are encouraging. Like, Man, this is a really well, they, they had seven acres. They probably could have sold it for something, right? Yep. They probably could have sold it for another business park or a strip mall or whatever else. But it's like this city could use green space. Not only, again, you know, shame on me for thinking that, that the extent of it would be for walking and enjoying nature in the middle of the city, but literally for people who need food but can't afford it. There, there's a little bit, you know, no one's going to live off of this, but it's a, it's a little bit. It's it's a help. And uh, I like the forward thinking of that. I, I would encourage you to I'd mentioned this a little bit ago. Uh, do some research, actually, on how much not just like product and time, but actual water is used maintaining our lawns in America. Oh, really? I mean, it's in the it's in the billions of gallons. And I again, this is not going to be a hobby horse segment right now, maybe another day, but um, and again, I have a lawn, so I'm not, you know, I'm yeah. a total hypocrite here. I'm not saying I'm growing fresh pr- produce for my neighborhood, but uh, it has given me pause to see other people use whatever their little plot is for social good, for the common good, as you might say, like how, how much we spend on maintaining these lawns. And again, a lot of that is, you know, that you've talked about loving mowing your lawn. That's mm-hmm. like an active therapy for you. I do love mowing my lawn. So I'm not knocking that at all. I just do think man, there's a lot of energy, a lot of resources and, and a lot, um, dare I say, wasted on maintaining these things that actually don't give back in any way, shape or form. That's really fascinating. These are things that I don't ever think about, <laughs> especially I mean, that's OK. How can city space be used, like you said, to the common good to help more people? And uh, this seems like a great idea. Well, and hopefully the challenge is, regardless of where you're listening, that maybe it's not a garden, maybe you don't have the capacity to interest, but are there other ways that we can take the stuff that's already afforded to us, our resources, our social space, our physical space, and to uh, to use it in some way to contribute to the common good of our neighborhood? Mm-hmm. I think that that's always a good charge and something that we should kind of keep at the forefront of our minds. Well, you've been listening to The Common Good right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with the one and only Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com, wherever it is you get your podcast. And uh, we often do say, I think my favorite part of this job mm. is having in-studio guests. Absolutely. And we have an in-studio guest, a very special in-studio guest, Natalie Brown. Welcome to the show. Thanks. I'd love for you just to let our audience know a little bit about who you are, what you do, what you're passionate about. And then we're going to get into this wonderful book that you just wrote. Perfect. 
So lately I've been telling people that I am a writer by trade and a storyteller by choice. Love that. So for my profession, I write. I love words. I love helping people communicate their messages in a way that's clear and effective. Love it. But I also love stories. And so through this book and through my personal life, I like to use words as a way to inspire people towards hope, challenge stereotypes, challenge the norm, and just create greater conversations. You pretty much just described like our heartbeat and vision for this show, yeah. which part that. of what made me so excited to have you on the show because it just feels like such a good fit. So you wrote this book called 52 Cups of Coffee. Yes. Just tell us first off why this book, why this title, just give us a big picture view of this particular work. Yeah, so it's kind of funny. I did not intend to write 52 Cups of Coffee. Mm. <laughs> it started out as some emails that I wrote in college called Thursday Thoughts, and they were basically a way for me to pay attention to how God was showing up in my life, where I was finding hope in the world. Mm. And I decided one summer, you know what? I'm going to take these emails and I'm going to give them to my mom as a birthday gift. She was oh, always super supportive of them. So I said, okay, I'm going to compile them all, do it at Office Depot. It's going to be something super <laughs> <laughs> And as I was working on the project, I really just felt God prompt my heart to make it more, to be mm. more vulnerable, to spend more time editing the pieces. And so that's exactly what I began to do. And it took about a year and a half. And over the course of it, he just really turned it into this devotional. So mm. 52 Cups of Coffee, it's a weekly devotional. And it's created to invite people to have intentional encounters with God. That's so good. So as somebody, um, as a pastor who loves to work in coffee shops, I love to work at Starbucks or any of the others. Uh, talk about that theme of coffee that goes through it. It seems intentional. Why did you choose this concept of 52 Cups of Coffee? Definitely. So people, a lot of people have asked me, I hate coffee. Can I still read the book? <laughs> Am I allowed? Right. <laughs> what if I'm great. a tea person? <laughs> and all are welcome here. <laughs> this is not a book about coffee. There are no coffee recipes in here. But for me, something that I noticed, similar to you, I love being in coffee shops. I love to work there. I love to meet people there. And over time, I began to notice that I had really sacred moments with people. Mm. I think there's something really special about being with someone and the only thing that's between you two is a cup of coffee or a muffin or whatever it is. Yeah. And I also noticed that in my spiritual life as well, when I'd show up to coffee shops and be there with God, we'd have just really special moments. And so that's kind of the essence behind this book. It's an invitation to have intentional time with God doing the thing that you love. Maybe that's drinking coffee like me. Maybe it's drinking tea. Maybe <laughs> it's playing golf or going for a walk. Whatever mm. that thing is for you, it's an invitation. Let's spend that time with God. Let's yeah. invite him into that thing. That's great. All right, so chapter one, it's called Exhale. And yes. in that chapter, uh, you share a pretty embarrassing story. So it's a two-part question. One, what is that story? <laughs> and two, why did you choose to share that, especially so early in the book? Yeah, that's a really cool story for me. So my senior year of high school, I decided to go out for the track team. And our first track meet came out, and I was chosen to run the anchor in the 4 by 4 relay. And it was my first time doing it. I was super nervous, but super excited. And honestly, I just pushed way too hard. And during the <laughs> middle of running, I fell on my face, no way. completely disqualified my team. My mom and my coach <laughs> had to carry me off the oh, track. No, no. Honestly, like I still cringe sometimes when I think <laughs> about it. And for so long, this was just such an embarrassing moment in my life. It honestly brought me a lot of shame when I thought about it. But God really spoke to me after about it, how that race kind of showed sometimes I just push too much yeah. and I forget what we have to do to run well. There's a certain discipline that's applied to that. And the same is true in our spiritual lives. We can't just jump out the gate and think, okay, Lord, I'm here. I'm going to do whatever you need yeah. me to do. There's a discipline that comes with that. 
And so as I was working on this book and it was getting towards the end, I was thinking about the first chapter and I was like, you know, I don't think it's there yet. I want to enhance more to this. And this track meet thing came to my mind and I felt God begin to speak to me again. Mm. And I remember taking out a piece of paper and just writing down as fast as I could. And then I put it in the book. And so it's really cool for me because something that used to bring me so much embarrassment yeah. is now a source of encouragement for me. And it's the first thing people read when they open this book. That's so yeah. good. I love on, that. On the back of your book, it starts with this line, life is loud. And I read that. I was like, yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> and there's constant noise, constant busyness. And so with that, how does this book speak to that? It's got kind of a feel of contemplation and stuff. How, how does this book speak to the loudness and the busyness of life? Mm-hmm. Well, Part of that goes into being a weekly devotional rather than a daily devotional. Oh. And so with that invitation, going back to like, this is your chance to invite God into something that matters to you. There's this call towards intentionality. Hmm. And in that, we kind of get to find a quiet space with God and say, Lord, I want you to speak to me. So rather than something that you do every day, though I love a good daily devotional, this is something to carry with you throughout the week as you read the story and reflect. It's this chance to say, God, will you keep speaking to me through this one specific experience, through Mm. this one story? And in that, I think kind of we put the noise at bay a little bit and we say, God, keep keep showing me more. Keep letting me find out more about who you are and what you're teaching me in this season. That's really good. Okay, so it becomes pretty clear that you've you've been all over the world. And anytime that I meet with people who have traveled a lot, they, they always have a very visceral sense of like what that brings to them and their writing. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to a little bit about how you believe your travels have impacted the way you write and the way that translates to just sort of your average reader? Definitely. I've been very blessed from the time I was young to be able to experience different cultures, experience mm-hmm. different countries. And I think the biggest thing for me is that that has given me a greater sense of how big God is. I think sometimes it's so easy to put God in a box based off of our experiences, our rituals, our church practices. But when I go to other places in the world, sometimes where Christianity is not the norm and you can actually be in trouble for being a Christian, it's cool to see how sacred their religion is to them. When I go to other places and the culture is different from my own, I get to remember, whoa, God, you are the same God that I serve, Mm -hmm. but there are so many different ways to serve you. And another thing for me is it reminds me how big the church is. Mm. So I was privileged to spend six months in South Africa when I was in college. And finding a church there was such a sacred experience for me because though I was in a completely different country on the other side of the world, there were so many churches there. Mm. And just entering into the church, I felt this exhale almost like, wow, these are my people. Even though I didn't Mm -hmm. know their names, I didn't know who they were. I knew, Hey, we are in this together. We serve the same God. And because of that, we already have common ground. That's awesome. Oh, that's really good. I'm curious about travel. What is it about travel? Do you think that, that fills your soul? Like you've clearly in your bio, it says South Africa, China, Hong Kong, Israel, Jamaica, among others, clearly travels a huge deal for you. Maybe Mm -hmm. uh, I'm assuming you're still to get to travel. Uh, Why do you love to travel so much? I think this is going to sound a little bit weird, but there's something about the disruption that I think is really good for me. So I'm someone that loves routines. I thrive off of routines. I don't like change. But when I'm given the opportunity to go to a new country, go to a new place, there's a sense of discomfort that I feel and Mm. having to kind of set aside my routines and find something new. But every time I'm really forced to find God in the midst of that. So even like when I studied abroad, I said goodbye to my family, my friends, my school, everything that was comfortable. And the only person that I could really run to was Jesus. Mm. And so even though it's exciting and it feels glamorous to get to go to other places, sometimes in the 
tension of being in unfamiliar settings, I find that I really have sacred moments with God. I love that. Was so another theme kind of woven throughout the whole book is this theme of hope, mm-hmm. which now maybe more than ever is like such a necessary theme. Definitely. Can you talk to us a little more about that? Yeah, I think that that's something the Lord has really been speaking to me about lately. I've kind of had this message that this world is far too desperate for people who have found a greater hope to remain silent. Mm. And I think that plays a big role in this book. Every time I wrote a chapter, I wanted it to come back to the idea that God is faithful. And I think we're living in a day and time where people are looking for people or someone to be faithful. Mm. They're looking for something that's bigger than themselves. And what we get throughout the Bible is that God keeps showing us he is good and he is faithful. He's good and he is faithful. And when I take the time to pay attention to that in my own life and invite other people to do the same, I think we're invited to find a greater sense of hope in our day-to-day lives. And Natalie Brown taking us to church today. (laughs) My goodness. Would you stick around for one more segment? Hey, I'd love to. If you're just joining us, that's Natalie Brown, author of the new book, 52 Cups of Coffee. You can learn more, and I highly recommend you do, at nataliebrown.com. We're going to continue to talk to her about her book, her experience, and all the things that kind of led to the formation of this book in the first place. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with the great, the mysterious, the magnanimous. None of that, but I like this. I like where this is going. <laughs> Why'd you stop me? Such a words of affirmation guy. I know, this is good. Those weren't necessarily affirmations. Anyway, welcome back. And uh, if you want to find us on Facebook, you go to the, the, what is our Facebook? <laughs> the Common Good Radio. <laughs> I am falling Show. apart of the seams. Yes. Also, 1160hope.com. But if you're just joining us, we have the wonderful Natalie Brown in the studio. She just wrote 52 Cups of Coffee Plus... Because I'm not that smart, I got the website wrong. So here's the actual website. It's natalieabrown.com, and that's Natalie, N-A-T-A-L-I-E. Is there other ways to even spell Natalie? Why am I even spelling this for people? Our books would say yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. You're like, Megan? You're like, I'll take it. Right. As long as my latte is <laughs> not even close. I just need caffeine, yep. even if it's somebody else's. Exactly. That's natalieabrown.com. Again, she just wrote this book, 52 Cups of Coffee, which as a, you know, a real caffeine addict, I'm already in. And Brian mentioned this earlier. You know, we've, we've never written books before. Yep. And uh, a question that I'm always curious about is, do you have a favorite chapter? Like the whole thing I know is sort of like your baby, right? But it is, is there yeah. a favorite chapter and why? You know, at the moment, I'm going to say that chapter three is my favorite. Mm. And that chapter is called Gifts of Desperation. And I like this chapter because when you hear the title, it's kind of like, what? Does that even make sense? Like, how can desperation be a gift? Mm. But this chapter really talks about the bleeding woman in scripture and how she got to this place where she had expended all of her resources. Mm. She did everything that she could and nothing worked. And from that desperation, she was willing to do what seemed dangerous, what was not in her best interest from the outside to get into the presence of Jesus. And that's where her miracle happened. That's where her transformation occurred. That's awesome. And so for me, I began to realize sometimes in our desperation, that gets us to do the one thing we need to do to get into the presence of Jesus. Mm. And that's where transformation can happen. That's so good. So the answer to this is probably everybody, but... Is there a specific person or, a, or a, someone in a specific uh, stage of life or something they're going through that you really hope picks up this book? Who are you thinking of when you wrote this book? Yeah, for me, the person that I want to pick up this book is someone that wants to add a little bit of pizzazz to their relationship with God. Hmm. So like any relationship, you know, there are certain things that you have to do. You need to stay in communication. You need to be open and you need to be honest. 
But sometimes even in relationship with the people we love most, we kind of lose the spark. Mm -hmm. We kind of lose the fun that comes with it. And so if you're in that place with God, I want you to know, first of all, that's okay. He still loves you. He still wants to be in relationship with you. And this, I hope that this book can be a resource for you to be like, hey, Lord, do you want to go out? Do you want to go do something new? Let's spend some time together talking Mm. about stories, talking about your word. Okay, so this is your first book, right? And I anticipate, even just listening to you speak, you're so well-read, so articulate. Like, I, I hope you keep writing for a long time. But I'm, I'm curious, even just from your own perspective, where do you hope that God takes this book specifically, and where do you see your writing future going? Mm, that's a great question. Mm. With this book, I hope that God continues to take it to people who are searching, mm. people that are longing for something deeper with him. Um, and then kind of a subset of that is I hope that God continues to use this book in the lives of young women. Mm. That's a place where my heart just really aches. And so I hope that young women continue to pick up this book and read it and invite God into their relationship um, with others, builds community, all of that good That's stuff. Great. In the future, I hope that he just keeps using my writing to encourage other people, both inside and outside of the church. That's so yeah. good. So before you mentioned this uh, this email chain, I think it was, you called it uh, Thursday Thoughts, and you said you did that in college? Yes. So this is really impressive, because you know, I don't know what you were like in college, but I wasn't Not a doing good anything no, productive <laughs> in college. I wasn't writing. I wasn't doing that. I would love to hear more story about that. What made you want to start something like that? And then it sounds like your mom played an influence. Tell me more about Mm -hmm. this uh, Thursday thoughts idea and and what it did in your life. Yeah, I love this story because Thursday thoughts actually kind of originated from a darker place in my life. mm. And so I was a junior in college and I was really going through a season of just feeling really down and discouraged a lot of the time. And I was starting to get concerned. So I called my mom one day and I was just like, Mom, I'm in this place where I'm feeling really down. Like, I don't know what to do. And she mentioned a verse that my dad had been going through our family with, which is found in Proverbs. It says, where there is no vision, the people perish. And she said, I think you need to talk to God. Tell him how you're feeling and ask him to reveal your purpose and renew your vision. So I went through this period of time where I was like, okay, Lord, I'm going to give you an hour every day. I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask for you to reveal my purpose. And it's kind of funny. I say I was hoping for like a Moses moment. Like Mm -hmm. I wanted like a... This is exactly what I'm calling you to do. Go do it. Come down from on high. (laughs) Exactly. Where's my burning bush sword? Right, right. (laughs) But I didn't get that. Instead, Mm. what I got is the Lord began to prompt my heart towards things that really made me passionate. One of those things was writing. Another one of those things was women's ministry. Mm. So I began to pray, Lord, how can I live into those things now? And a few days later, my friend Caitlin came to me and she just said, hey, I want to talk to you about something. And there's an author I really like named Hannah Bruncher that sends out emails every Monday. Mm. She said, you know what? You're in this place where you're feeling really discouraged. Why don't you use writing as a form of hope? She's like, why don't you send out an email once a week like Hannah? So Thursday thoughts kind of came from that Hmm. and then eventually became the basis of this book. And I still send out Thursday thoughts today. Oh, you do? Mm -hmm. If you go to my website, you can find a little plug that says need some encouragement if you enter your email which just as a reminder that's natalie a brown yep not natalie brown which i'm sure is a lovely lady but i'm sure she is as well we're not talking to her right now we're talking to natalie a brown yeah i'm sure she's a lovely lady. that's good okay so up until this point uh you've talked a lot about like the the impact the book has had on other people and what you hope it will have and anyone that i've ever talked to that's written a book they almost always talk about it like this journey, but it also, it sounds grueling. Like it sounds like there's some real highs and some real, real lows. Like, can you talk a little bit about how writing this book has impacted you personally? Mm, Great question. For me, I think 
the biggest thing that this did book did for me, it felt almost like working out every single mm-hmm. day. And you're kind of building these muscles where at first it's really painful, but the more you do it, the stronger you get. And so for me, I'm someone, I love the moments of inspiration. Like when I first had the idea to really do this book, it was like, yes, this would be awesome. (laughs) But then with time, as that kind of began to just fade away, it was like, oh man, I have to keep showing up. I have to keep waiting for the words to come. But in the process, I think I really developed this muscle of patience that Mm. obviously I still have to work on that, but it was something I really (laughs) needed a lot of before just the ability to wait on God and say, you know what, Lord, I feel you calling me to something, so I'm going to keep showing up even when it takes longer than I expect. Mm. I think that's the biggest thing that this book did for me. That's great. It might be a completely unfair question because you just wrote this book, but as a writer, (laughs) is there there something else percolating in you? Are you just waiting on God to see what that is? What, What might be out there in the future? What's coming? Definitely. In terms of writing, I have another book that I'd like to write. It's still in the development stages, but I want to take some time to write a book about God's grace and how Mm. that grace shows up to us in every moment. And something I've been realizing in my own life is because God has extended us his grace, we have this gift to be able to face really broken situations and say, hey, what's beautiful in this and how can we respond to the brokenness that we're seeing? And I think that we need to do more of that. We need to look at what's beautiful and what's broken. So I'd love to write a book that kind of talks about some of my life experiences and goes through that. Um, And I'm also developing a curriculum right now for young women that's meant to empower them to identify their God-given calling and to respond to it. Because I feel like Mm. God kind of took me on this journey with writing and with women's ministry, I realized, you know what? God has a specific calling on each of our lives. It kind of goes back to Esther 4.14. Who knows but that you've been called for such a time as this. I want to help encourage women who are in high school and college to begin to respond to that today. It's not something you have to do when you're 52 or later on (laughs) in your life. It's something that God can speak to you about now. That's so good. I'm just curious. Both of the things you just mentioned are writing specific are you interested in like speaking or, or painting or juggling or yeah, what are you like other things outside of writing that you're like really interested to kind of sink your teeth into too? Yes. So my background is in communication. So uh, I do like to speak. Clearly. You're so good. <laughs> oh, thank you. It's definitely something that God is continuously calling me into and something that I, yeah, I'm just still getting my feet in the water in, but I love to be able to just talk and have engaging conversations yeah. with people about who God is and what he's doing in our everyday lives. That's so good. But not right. juggling. But not, <laughs> not juggling. I can juggle if you're looking for, you know, Ian if you guys want to teach me, you know, I'd be open to uh, that. I know about as much as you do about juggling right now. So remind us as we start to wrap up here, we can get the book at natalieabrown.com. Also, yes. Amazon, all sorts of other places, mm-hmm. wherever we can find books. Is that where we go? Yep. Yeah. Right. It's called 52 Cups of Coffee. 52 Cups of Coffee. Natalie Brown, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. Please come back again sometime. Yes, thank Do it. you. I'd love to. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. Again, the book is 52 Cups of Coffee. Go to natalieabrown.com, not only to learn more, but to sign up for the mailing list if you'd like and mm-hmm. to learn about other opportunities to engage with Natalie. Thank you so much for joining us here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. doing you're good you're more of a musician than i am oh i feel really good about this you're on it you're on it my arm's getting tired i can't (laughs) (laughs) how do people do that for a whole song i don't know i don't know i've been googling while in our break uh rom-coms i got my second site of 50 best rom-coms of all time second place where the princess bride was on there what yes i'm gonna do some more research tonight 
I kind of let's I, put that on Facebook as a question. I, I want I want to know if people, yeah, do they consider Princess Bride a rom com or not? Yeah, I'd like to know that. Gosh, this is going to get heated. You. This is going to get heated. You. I don't think it is, but everywhere I'm looking about favorite rom coms of all time, Princess Bride is not only there but prominently displayed. Ryan, we do not battle against flesh and blood. <laughs> <laughs> Powers of principalities. I don't even know. Rats of unusual good. size. I don't think they exist. That was uh, good. All right. So here's a story. It's not even a story, but it's something. The reason we're talking about it is because it's it's like in the forefront. And without Every naming day. any specific incidents or conversations or tweets, um, I think you'll understand why we want to talk about this. Uh, the headline is how to avoid anger overload in the digital age. Which is a great yeah. uh, hook, right? Because who hasn't on both sides of the aisle? By the way, we are we are hopefully being uh, level-handed at least in this discussion. That man, it seems like Christian, non-Christian, right, left, like everyone. The dials are all kind of turned up to eleven right now, which is kind of why we're doing this series at our church. The world's gone mm-hmm. mad because, like, everyone has told me, this is how I feel right now. Yeah. People on all sides of every discussion, we, we feel the heat turn it up. So this is the Gospel Coalition, and uh, there's some really good insight, but also uh, we'll get to some practical advice on how to actually manage some of these things. Yeah. How can we actually live with a Christ-like posture in a, an age and era where anger seems to not only be okay, but mostly celebrated most of the time. So yeah. why don't you get us into it? It's just wild, man. The first line, it gets at what you, it puts numbers to what you were just talking about. It says a recent poll... And this article came out on July 15th. Uh, it says a recent poll found that 84% of Americans say they are angrier today compared with a generation ago. 84% of us say that we're angrier today. And why is that? Why would we be angrier today? Another poll found Americans to be angrier in 2018 than at any other point in the last decade. Uh and it says much of the anger is warranted when we come across stories of suffering children at detention centers or legislatures cheering late term abortions. We should be angry when we read a story about sexual abuse or see someone making dehumanizing or racist comments on Twitter. Our blood should boil. Uh, but then it gets into like and we talked about this, whether it be Stetzer's book, Christians in an Age of Outrage. Right. I think yesterday we were discussing an article that that used the term outrage porn uh-huh. like that, yeah. that there was just outrage over outrage. And so this author, Brett McCracken, is trying to ask how to avoid anger overload in the digital age. So he's obviously putting a lot of our anger because of our connectedness and because of the ability for people to share all sorts of opinions and because of our ability to know all the bad things in this world, saying that it's in this digital age, the propensity to anger is that much uh, greater. It says the paradox is characteristic of our times that to the abstract conquest of space by man corresponds the limitation of place for men. It's basically saying that, that we live in a time where, where it's just so much easier to get angry. Like, do you ever, we said, I keep saying things I've already said, but did you say this yesterday that uh, we have people in our lives who like they go away for vacation and they always are like, oh, it was so good to be disconnected, but then they get reconnected right when they come back. Right. Uh, and so like an uh, addict, by the way, yeah, there you go. There you go. And so social media really plays into this. He says, we can easily spend hours of a day attending to headlines about things that will never affect us and which we can never alter debate about things we know little about and problems we cannot solve. That leads to angst that leads to anger. And so, uh, I do feel like you and I keep going back to this concept. And sometimes I'm like, are we going to do another story about anger and digital age and this, that, but 
in reality, it's super important because all the polls are showing that non-Christians and Christians, our culture in general, is just getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And that's just not healthy nor productive. Yeah, we're going to get to it in a little bit. The uh, three suggestions he gives for how to engage Mm -hmm. uh, in this digital age. But he says uh, one problem the digital age poses for the local church is that it draws the attention of individual Christians constantly outward, but in often unproductive and relentlessly fragmented ways. People in our churches spend their mental energy every week, keeping tabs on the latest Twitter outrage or distant calamity with little energy left to pour into the lives and issues right in front of them. To be sure, awareness of the broader world can be a great thing in the Christian life, a motivator for global missions, charitable giving, broadened perspectives and a healthy sense of connectedness to the global body of Christ. But without careful, uh, carefully regulating our exposure to media, we can easily attend to the quote out there more than the quote right here, creating an imbalance that leads to chronic stress, angst and sometimes a dangerous numbness, which Mm. I want to be careful not to not to take that fully because I do think the church has had a history sometimes with some hyper obsessive in here focus Mm -hmm. and a real lack of out there focus. So it feels a little bit like the pendulum is swinging again. And, you know, and kind of to what he just said there, sometimes we should feel stress and angst around the broader issues. So I don't think stress and angst is always a bad thing. And sometimes it's a position of privilege to say, I don't want to deal with that because that's causing me stress. You're like, Nope, you need to be mindful of these things. But um, he later talks about uh, amusing ourselves to death. Have you ever read that book? No. It's really good. It's by uh, Neil Postman. He talks about how our access to information and news from all over the world gives us something to talk about, but cannot lead to any meaningful action. This mm. is the legacy of the telegraph, he says, by generating an abundance of irrelevant information, it dramatically altered what may be called the information action ratio. Mm. And I love that idea of the information um, information action ratio, because I think part of the case he's making is it's way out of whack. Absolutely. And so he gives us three suggestions of how he writes, how might prudent Christians navigate this world of anger overlord, overlord, (laughs) anger, overlord, anger, overlord is here before the overlord. (laughs) And the first one overload is the word. The first one is this. Try to prioritize actionable information. Audit your information environment. How much of it can actually enhance your local, tangible, actionable life? Hmm. Christians especially should note whether they are spending more time investing in remote digital controversies that in concrete context of their neighborhood and the flesh and blood saints in their church. Instead of passively consuming indiscriminate information that rushes to you via social media and cable news, consider being more proactive and selective. Instead of default on for these buzzing purveyors of anger-inducing grievances, try default off it's really interesting it's again goes back to what can actually you make a difference in what is actually making a difference in your world instead of just treating everything the same yeah and the second one is the irony of ironies of two guys who are both pastors and radio hosts Mm -hmm. Um, second consider the value of silence and unmediated space fight the temptation to fill every moment of your life with media it may be a revolutionary thought today but you can actually stand in line at starbucks without pulling out your phone and scanning social media you can commute to work Without listening to talk radio. Eh. Uh, fake news. <laughs> fake news. You can go for a jog without listening to a podcast. You can spend your breaks, transitions, and other in-between times in silence, alone with your thoughts. Even better, in prayer, reflection, awe, and gratitude. You don't have to fill every spare moment with something informative or useful. You can just be still and silent. Mm. If we just removed all the time we spend online in these in-between moments of life, 
we'd instantly have much less to trigger our stress and anger. That's good. Third and lastly, he writes, most importantly, try to cultivate a Christian spirit of, quote, holy calm in a world of ever-present anger. That's good. The real strength of the good soldier of Jesus Christ, Jonathan Edwards wrote nearly 300 years ago, is simply the steadfast maintenance of holy calmness. Sustained amidst all the storms, injuries, wrong behavior, and unexpected acts and events in this evil and unreasonable world, the scripture seems to intimate that true fortitude consists chiefly of this. He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that rules his spirit than he that takes a city, Proverbs 16.32 says. In a world that constantly dares us to rant and rave about all manner of things, Christ followers should instead keep calm and carry on. Staying diligent in discipleship, committed to community, faithful in worship, and focused in mission. I really love that, man. A holy calm in the midst of all the craziness around us. I would add an asterisk. Go for it. Sometimes the Christ follower needs to be riled up. And I think he says that earlier. I think he does, too. But like when he talks about uh, staying diligent, the Christ followers should instead keep calm and carry on. Uh, I think sometimes, though. Our blood does need to boil. Yep. Sometimes we need to de- speak truth to power. Sometimes we need to say enough is enough. And I think that's that in lies the balance, right? Half the half our team is saying, can't everyone just calm down? The other half is saying we've been calm too long exactly. and things have gotten on a hand. And I think uh, I like this idea of holy calm, maybe coupled with righteous anger. Maybe yeah. it's a maybe it's a both and and uh, learning to better balance those two maybe is part of our goal. Well, speaking of holy calm, coming up next, we're going to land the plane the way that we always do with some interweb insanity. I know that you're shocked that there's actual insanity on the interwebs, but we're going to close the show the way that we always do, reading stories we've never read before with sound effects we've never heard. And uh, Brian and I are going to giggle right along with you here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Welcome back, everyone. That... Music can you even call it music. Nope. That wall of sound can only mean <laughs> can only mean one thing. It's the end of the show, which means it's time for some interwebs. <laughs> what? I'm kidding. Okay, we did not coordinate that. <laughs> I do. I was messing. We got to work you. on our coordination. I was messing with you. We finished each other's sandwiches. Sandwiches. Was oh, that Frozen? That was from Frozen, right? It's from something else, though. You said this last week. I've never seen Frozen, uh, so they're it's in the song of Frozen, which maybe you've just heard the song because everybody knew the songs, even if you never saw it. They go, finish your sandwiches. Nope. I, li- I literally, I mean, I want Could to be, be cool enough else. to know that. I'm sure that it is. Okay, before, I know this is, we got to jump into these. <laughs> yeah. But going on on our Facebook page from yesterday's show yeah. is a debate right now about whether The Princess Bride is a rom-com. That's right. So I would encourage people to get on the Facebook because it is, it's some interesting takes going well, on. And John posted it. John, what was your verdict, by the way? My personal verdict? Yeah, your yeah. Personal, it totally ro- does not reflect the views well, of the station. Well, no. <laughs> or your mom. <laughs> or, <laughs> do I need a discla- disclaimer before we do yeah, anything? Before but we take I, I think it's a romantic comedy. I saw someone posted that it was an adventure comedy, <laughs> and I would agree with them because it is. But his quest is involved to romance involve romance to save her from this evil what, what but it doesn't make yeah. Aladdin a rom-com somebody though. Like did that's somebody, not a comedy though that's just a romantic movie I found it some, very funny what I thought there was are, a really funny move is that somebody was like it's a kissing book because I didn't realize at the beginning the kid goes to his grandpa is this a kissing is this book, a kissing <laughs> book? <laughs> oh that's really clever ah oh, Fred Savage anyway we would encourage you to get onto Facebook uh, the common good radio show and and uh, weigh in we would love for more uh, more people to weigh in on that okay so Interweb Insanity is uh, Keith Conrad our executive 
executive producer selects these stories ahead of time, delivers to the t- delivers them to us face down with a smirk in his face. <laughs> we have that read them. We haven't heard the sound effects. We're going to read them quickly now because yeah, we used up some time. Then. We're running out of time. So uh, Brian Fromm, kick us off. South Dakota woman's family trip. Women's woman's family <laughs> trip to Mount Rushmore takes an illegal turn. Oh. She did it barefoot without a rope and illegally. Nice. A Nebraska woman was arrested on Friday after scaling Mount Rushmore nearly to the top. Oh, the Rapid City Journal cites federal court records in reporting Alexandria in Contro of Omaha bypassed orange warning signs, hopped a railing, and then began scaling the granite mountain between George Washington and Thomas Jefferson's faces. She made it within 15 feet of the top as park ranger called for her to come down Encontro was allegedly on a vertical rock face when she agreed to descend minutes later. Oh, this isn't where I park my car. (laughs) Maybe she was just colorblind. Uh, (laughs) Alabama. Police. Flushing drugs could create Alabama meth gators. Mm. (laughs) I played bass in meth gators. (laughs) Uh, Tennessee police arrested a man after he allegedly, allegedly tried to flush a dozen grams, a dozen grams of drugs down his toilet. Something police jokingly said could create meth gators in Alabama. Uh, officers with Loretta Police Department in Tennessee arrested a suspect, a suspected drug dealer who was found attempting to flush grams methamphetamine down the toilet on Saturday, according to a post on the department's Facebook page. Mama, now the gator got in the house. Now the gator, give me that sugar. Come here. Oh, Get him off. Okay. Get that gator. This one's so violent. <laughs> so violent. <laughs> Pennsylvania. Car burglary suspect claims he was looking for Snickers bar to eat. A West Reading man was found with four cigarette lighters, a cup of loose change, medication prescribed to someone else, and three lottery tickets. Sounds like a good time. Borough police encountered him while investigating a report of a man pulling car door handles in a back alley. Damien M. Cruz, age 23, uh, told the police who located him on Fifth Avenue and Playground Drive just before 6 p.m. Saturday that he tried to open some doors in search of a Snickers bar to eat. Uh, according to investigators, he was going through them. Uh, he took, he rummaged through cars, took perfume, medication, lottery tickets, chains. It's unclear whether he found a Snickers bar. You're not you when you're hungry. Snickers satisfies. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That might be my favorite drop since we've been doing this. All right, Arkansas, or as I like to say, Arkansas. Man assaults employee with box of stolen bagel bites. <laughs> Police said a Springdale man stole a box of bagel bites from a local Dollar Tree. They have those at Dollar Tree? Going to Dollar Tree tonight. Assaulted the manager with the box and then ran into a nearby Wendy's and slapped a customer. <laughs> Roger Brittenolf, Brittenolf 49, was arrested Monday, July 15th in connection with the robbery, second degree assault, resisting arrest, public intoxication, there it is, and disorderly conduct. When pizza's on a bagel, you can eat pizza Oh, Keith Conrad is hot today. He is rolling. It today. seems like it would be the most obvious choice to just get the commercial from what we're yeah, talking right. about. Yes. This is Still, good. And now I'm hungry. Now I'm really hungry. All right, this last one's oh. from Ohio, and it's outstanding. Man was too hot in back of a police cruiser, so he called nine one one to to request air conditioning. <laughs> A man was being detained in the back of a police cruiser. He was hot and wanted the air conditioning turned on, so he called 911. Police were investigating a domestic case when they detained a man in the back of a cruiser while they've got things sorted out. While in the cruiser, the police, uh, the man started to get uncomfortably hot and tried to get the attention of the officers. Unable to get the attention of officers on the scene, the man decided to call 911 to ask the police to turn the air conditioner on, air conditioning on. Officers came to the cruiser and cranked the air for the man, making sure he was cool enough before heading back 
to their investigation. Police said the man was not charged with any crimes. It's so hot. Milk was a bad choice. <laughs> that was some of the best some of the best drops we've ever had. Those Keith. Way to go, Keith. Way Never go. a dull moment. I will not be here tomorrow, actually. My I wife will. and family and I are driving to Michigan for a uh, wedding to see some family. So it'll be Brian plus a mystery guest. Mystery guest. You're, going to, you're going to America's High Five yeah, tomorrow. Going to America's High Five <laughs> in Michigan. Thanks for joining us. Hope you'll join us again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. Here in the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.